0: Welcome to the first episode of Season 3 of the Birding Off Podcast. My name is Adam and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the people that pursue them. With the Flock to Marion cruise only a few weeks away, for this week's episode I have a chat to Daniel Dankwitz, the Acting Communications Manager for BirdLife South Africa. Daniel gives us all the important information to prepare for an epic flock cruise. We will also have a chat about this year's BirdLife South Africa Bird of the Year. All the important links from this episode can be found in the notes of the show be sure to visit the birding Life's online store we sell books merchandise accommodation and all the best optics for birding we aim to offer the best titles at the best prices along with fantastic service there's a link to the shop in the notes to the show so Without further ado, let's get into today's episode.
1: The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lesser bird logging app. Spot, plot, play a part. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. The Birding Life is a lot more than just a podcast. It's a multi-platform resource to connect birders with each other. Amazing locations, the best resources, and obviously where to find amazing birds. Check out our website at www.thebirdinglife.com, our YouTube channel, our various social media platforms, as well as the other podcasts we host. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing and leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to help others find the show. So let us get into this week's episode of the Birding Life Podcast.
0: Okay, Daniel, I want to welcome you to the show. It's good to have a chat to you. I'm really excited and yeah, just welcome to the Birding Life Podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be talking to you today.
0: So what I find quite interesting when I was doing a bit of online research stalking, I don't know which one you want to call it, but I found out that you actually grew up in Southern Zambia. Now that's a fantastic part of the world. I've actually got a friend who's up there who's invited me to come up and stay. So how did this part of your life shape your love of birds?
2: Absolutely. So I grew up on a small tobacco farm, which is about 120 kilometers northeast of Victoria Falls in southern Zambia. This is one of the prime birdwatching sites in all of Zambia. Um, those who may have visited Zambia will know that this is the core area for one of Zambia's two endemic bird species. That's the Chaplain's Barbit. And so being completely immersed in nature up in this part of Zambia, being completely surrounded by absolutely fantastic birds, it was almost natural that I would gain an interest in birds and from there I obviously went to pursue my schooling and education down in South Africa but have always maintained uh, something of a life up in Zambia. My parents are still up there as well as my brother and I take any opportunity to get back.
0: Yeah, I saw you did a trip recently up to Zambia. I know, obviously, you went to see family, but did you manage to get some birding done while you were up there? Yes, so <laughs>
2: um, it was primarily a trip to go and visit family. My grandparents, my parents, my brother are all up in Zambia, but I take any opportunity, as I said, to get up there. And any opportunity to get to Zambia comes with some time out in the Miombo woodlands there. It's, those are the birds that I grew up seeing, things like spotted creeper and rack tailed roller. So any opportunity to go and see them i jump at um and on this trip i certainly did have an opportunity to do so
0: i don't know if you still are doing it but are you still are guiding for rock jumper
2: Yes, so um, obviously the COVID, pandi- COVID uh, pandemic hit Rock Jumper quite hard and we um, have run very limited a very limited number of tours in the last two years, but it is starting to pick up again. Um, I've done a couple trips in South Africa in the last few months. I've got a few trips coming up, uh, one trip to Kenya in particular. Um, of course, uh, Rock Jumper have partnered with BirdLife, so we are Many of our guides are going to be on the Flock to Marion cruise, which is quite exciting. And throughout 2022 and 2023, we we have a fair number of tours that have booked. Uh, so looking forward to getting back into the saddle and doing some guiding again. Can't wait.
0: And obviously the fact that you you work for Rock Jumper means that you've been to some fantastic places. So what are some of the highlights? What are some of the countries that you've got to visit Absolutely. So some of the um,
2: countries I've been able to visit, I've tried to specialize in Asia, so I've been lucky enough to travel extensively through India, through Bhutan, uh, Sri Lanka, and China, all of which I've absolutely loved. I think China has to rank as one of the top destinations uh, to travel to. Um, I visited a province of China by the name of Sichuan, so it's on the northern slopes of the Himalayan range, um, and it's the pheasant capital of the world. So things like Chinese, um, monal, uh, lady ameth, and golden pheasants, just some of the most iconic birds in the world. Um, but then I've also been lucky to travel quite extensively through Africa. So I've done Ghana, I've done Uganda. Uh, next month, I'll be traveling up to Kenya for two or three weeks, um, and then a fair bit down here in Southern Africa.
0: I, I didn't put this on the questions, but I was thinking about this before. You know, when when I first started birding, the the, the idea of birding or as I knew it then, was bird watching was. Um, excuse if anyone's watching this and you are older, but the idea I had was always an older person, maybe in a safari suit, sitting in a in a hide, looking at binoculars. But it's interesting that birding has started to attract a lot of younger younger people. And I would actually start put you in the in the younger category of birders compared to what I would have seen. What do you What do you feel is the attraction of birding to to younger people nowadays?
2: So I think the whole nature of the game is changing. Indeed, there there was or there is this perception that birdwatching is a hobby that's dominated by elderly folk, people who may have studied ornithology at university. Um, but it, that has completely changed. Um, An interesting statistic is among people under the age of thirty in the United States. Bird watching is actually becoming the most common pastime. Um, so it's uh, it's becoming a huge huge uh, industry, if you will. Um, but the entire nature of the game is changing and I think it's be- it's moving from an incredibly passive, Hobby where you go out and you just appreciate birds to a fairly competitive sport, if you will, um, with people actively targeting species that they may not have seen previously. The whole ranking game of listing has started, and so I think the whole nature of the game is changing. And certainly here in South Africa, we're seeing a huge number of uh, really impressive young up-and-coming birders who are now basically dominating the the pastime. I think.
0: I think possibly that social media has played a big part in it because obviously in the the past you had got birding and you know to hear about these special sightings and maybe a life list didn't have as much attraction because no one else really knew well very fewer people knew people knew it was on your list where nowadays almost every bird that people see they're popping pictures on so every time someone sees a special bird it's on social media and there's kind of like a you know there's a you know, there's a a bit of fame that comes with seeing these nice birds. And maybe that's also contributed to the draw to the younger birders nowadays.
2: Yes, absolutely. And I certainly think in addition to that, it's moving from passively observing birds, spending time in the field, observing birds, observing their behavior, watching what they do, uh, to also attracting photographers and people spending a lot more time sitting with birds to get that million dollar shot that. They then, of course, post to social media and that's what the world sees then.
0: So a lot of young people, we're speaking about the fact uh, about youth. A lot of these young people, not as you go ask them and say, what do you want to do when you leave school? And almost all of them want to have some sort of career in in birding or in nature or in ornithology. This was not just something that you you thought of doing. This was something that you actually got to do. And how did you end up following this career path? And what I find is interesting is someone who grew up in Zambia and just looking at where you, studied, where you studied at school, it seems like you're almost in these landlocked places, yet your PhD was around tropical seabirds, how the heck did that happen? (laughs)
2: <laughs> yes, so I think, I mean, the saying goes that the grass is always green on the uh, on the other side of the road. And I think that's exactly the case. Coming from a landlocked country, I've always been absolutely fascinated with the sea and with all things uh, related to the sea. Um, obviously, then my interest in birds developed from a very young age. I mean, I can remember from the age of five, before I could barely write, I was walking around and sort of drawing birds in a little sketchbook to later take home and try and identify in a field guide. So I've been very lucky that this passion has been ingrained in me from for longer than I can remember. And it was almost seemed natural that I would then go through to study uh, zoology at university and then specialize in ornithology as I reached uh, postgraduate levels. The best advice I can give for anyone looking at a career in ornithology is just to follow your passion. Do what makes you happy. Go for it. There are so many opportunities for birders to use their interest and their skill as a career option nowadays. Um, So it's certainly something I've been incredibly lucky with, uh, both in pursuing an academic career option with uh, my PhD and all the research I've been doing on tropical seabirds, but also the guiding element and the the, uh, opportunity that's afforded me to be able to travel so extensively through Africa and through Asia. Uh, So the opportunity is there. And just if you follow your passion, that passion will drive you to incredible places. And, yeah, I mean, in terms of seabirds, that was, it seemed so far detached from uh, anything that I knew coming from my upbringing in Zambia. But it was during my honours year that I found that passion for seabirds. I took on a research project on the African penguin. And just the more I started reading about seabirds, the more I realised how incredible these birds are and what incredible adaptions and abilities they have to overcome these incredible odds of flying thousands of kilometers out at sea or uh, breeding in some of the most inaccessible places that we know of. And so that fascination just sort of snowballed. And from there, I mean, there was no other option but to pursue, uh, pursue a career studying seabirds.
0: So speaking about seabirds, a few weeks from now, we'll be heading on the Flock to Marion cruise. Now, I've read all the official write-ups, which are cool, have made me excited to go on on the cruise. But I want to hear from you, what, what excites you about this cruise? What is it that you think makes this cruise so special? And what can we expect on the cruise? So
2: this cruise, I mean Flock to Marion truly is the once in a lifetime opportunity. Marion Island, or the Prince Edward Islands uh, to which Marion Island is of course included, are some of the most inaccessible remote islands in the world. And uh, very, very few people, only really researchers, get the opportunity to go go down there and to spend time on the island. Now of course we're not going to be able to set foot on Marion Island, uh, but we're going to get pretty darn close to it. And uh, the opportunity to see some of the seabirds and the marine mammals that breed in the vicinity of Marion Island uh, really is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Now as a seabird researcher um, I've been very lucky to travel quite extensively uh, in pursuit of seabirds that I've been studying. I spent two and a half years living out on Reunion Island. I've done countless pelagic trips off South Africa and elsewhere and on this particular cruise there are several birds that are a distinct possibility that I've never been able to see. Uh, so for your more everyday birders, it's really a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to catch up with some of the world's rarest, uh, least-known birds. Uh, many of these birds cannot be seen in South African waters, uh, so one really has to to come on this cruise in order to have a chance to see them, to have a chance to add them to your Uh, life list. Uh, Going back to listing for the South African list, BirdLife South Africa have recently come up with the South African Listers Club and this will give you the opportunity, or this cruise at least, will give you the opportunity to add a number of seabirds to your South African list, note that this is independent to the Southern African list. South African list includes includes the waters surrounding Marion Island. So on this cruise, you'll have the opportunity to add some incredibly rare species to your South African list. Really push your numbers up. Yeah, it it, it proves to be incredibly exciting. In addition, of course, to the sightings, there's a fantastic um, lecture schedule that's planned for the Uh, for the voyage featuring its 24 talks by several of the world's top seabird experts, marine mammal experts and general conservationists. Um, So you'll really be able to have the opportunity to expand your knowledge on seabirds and marine mammals. And in addition to that, we have a few celebrities coming along. Of course, Peter Harrison will be uh, joining us on this cruise, which is uh, quite exciting. There's the likes of Peter Ryan as well, Trevor Hardacre. So we've got a fantastic team of guides and just gen- the general camaraderie on the ship is uh, incredibly exciting. I personally cannot wait.
0: So you spoke about some of the the birds that we can see. Give us give us a bit of a taste of some birds that we can expect, maybe some mammals that, you know, what what can we expect? You know, I know there's official lists out there, but for those who haven't seen the list, wetter appetites, what can we expect to see on the cruise.
2: Absolutely, so some of the birds that we anticipate seeing are things like the sooty and light mantled albatrosses, which are incredibly rare in South African waters, but the further south you get, the more common they uh, become, and both of those species have a resident breeding population on Marion Island, so we have a very, very good chance of seeing them. Uh, then there's a number of penguin species that are possible, including king penguin, southern rockhopper penguin, macaroni penguins, so some of the penguins that occur in South African waters only as vagrants. Um, Stuff like the Kerguelen petrel, perhaps even an an Atlantic petrel if we're very lucky. Those are two birds that I've not personally seen and that I'm very excited about the chances of seeing them. Um, Then if we can get into Marion Island waters, the three big Marion Island specials are of course the lesser or black-faced sheathbill, the Crozet shag and the Kerguelen tern. Um, so truly, it's a list an incredibly long list of species we expect to see. Um, as far as marine mammals are concerned, I'm personally extremely excited to see killer whales again. I've seen them once or twice. Um, but we have an excellent chance of seeing killer whales. Um, Then there's things like the Heavisides Dolphin as we leave Cape Town, Uh, perhaps something uh, extremely special like the Southern Right Whale Dolphin, which is a big Southern Ocean special, Um, so the list just goes on and on and yeah, the cha- even the slimmest chance of seeing some of these species is a chance worth taking. Uh, so anyone who perhaps hasn't booked on this cruise, there is still time to do so, and I would suggest I would well I would highly recommend you come along for a chance to add some of these species to your list
0: you said there is still space on the on for the cruise how, if somebody wants to book i know there's not a long time to go and i encourage you to get on there i mean just hearing the people that are going to be on the boat the birds you're going to get to see this is going to be an epic cruise so how would people go about booking for the cruise
2: yes so this really is a once in a lifetime opportunity so if you haven't booked i would highly recommend that you do so You can find all the information you need on the Flock to Marion Voyage on the BirdLife South Africa website, which is birdlife.org.za. But then you can book through the MSC Cruises website, uh, a link for which is provided on the BirdLife website. And if you would like any further information on the Voyage, you're welcome to contact us at flock 2022 at birdlife.org.za, and our team will provide you with any additional information that you require to, to book on this exciting voyage. Really, I have to stress that this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. The species that we saw on the previous cruise, uh, the flock at sea again, which uh we stayed in South African waters, um, left a number, number of people feeling quite somber that they weren't able to come or that they didn't take the opportunity to join that cruise. And here we're going to be heading a heck of a lot further south, so the chance to add even rarer species um, is, is definitely there.
0: We'll pop all those links into the into the comment section of this podcast. But you spoke a little bit about a Peter Harrison talk. I had an opportunity last year to chat to Peter Harrison and oh, I was super nervous because like, yeah, you spoke about, you know, who he is. But such an amazing person. Tell us a little bit about a Peter Harrison talk. You know, you've experienced one before. How, what is it like going to Peter Harrison talk?
2: So on the Flocket Sea again in uh, 2020, uh, 2017, where we left Cape Town on a cruise basically to nowhere, we went to the edge of the exclusive economic zone and hung around there for a few days before returning back to Cape Town. Peter graced us with a number of lectures and really his talks are something else. I mean, Peter's been described as the Attenborough of the seas. Uh, his knowledge is perhaps far greater than any other seabird out there. Um, He's written all of the main guides to seabirds of the world, uh, one of which has recently, the new seabird identification guide, has just come out now. I have distinct memories from the previous cruise of watching his talk on albatrosses, the ocean nomads, where he would stand up on the stage and do the most incredible mimicry of the calls of sooty albatrosses, sooty albatrosses' Uh, one of his favorite bird species, and he spent years observing them on their breeding islands. And just hearing some of his stories, uh, some small anecdotes here and there, really is something special. I mean, it's something that sends shivers down your spine, and uh, you really, if you didn't have a love and appreciation for seabirds before you attended one of Peter's talks, I can guarantee that after you've attended one of his lectures, you will... Uh, Certainly, have a newfound appreciation for these birds and the incredible lengths that they have to go to to survive in their um, marine environments.
0: So, I didn't get to go on any of the previous flock cruises, but one image I distinctly remember was an image of hundreds of birders flocked together on, on a deck with binoculars on their eyes. And honestly, when I thought of that, I thought there's a couple of things, you know obviously there's guides on board but i'm i'm not i'm not great with seabirds firstly how the heck am i going to know what they're pointing out and then secondly how am i even be able to identify these seabirds you know for those who are going on the cruise you know there's only a couple of weeks to go now you know what sort of preparation can they do in the lead up to flock and then secondly how can they maximize their time on the cruise to see as many birds as possible
2: Absolutely. And just to add to that, I think a big concern for many of the passengers who are already booked on the Flock to Marion cruise is COVID and social distancing, of course. I, myself, and one of my colleagues at BirdLife, Andrew de were lucky enough to embark on a Flock to Marion Reconnaissance trip in early December where we sailed up to Pomine on the MSC Orchestra that's up into the Mozambican Channel. On that cruise we set out the guiding structure, the layout of the cruise. We have about 40 guides coming on the Flock to Marion voyage and these guides are going to be spread out throughout the ship. Um, we've set up a detailed communication system where guides are going to be using two-way radios to communicate with one another to announce special sightings. They're going to be using loud to announce sightings to passengers in their immediate vicinity. And then for the most notable sightings, the guides will be using the ship's intercom to announce uh, ship-wide that a special bird has been seen. That will be for Uh, not for everything but for the highlights of the cruise. So in terms of getting onto the bird, there's going to be more than sufficient guides to assist you. The guides are wearing uh, very well-marked clothing. Uh, so you'll be able to spot them quite easily on the decks. In addition to that, the guides have been spaced out throughout the decks. The decks really are quite spacious and provide ample opportunity for viewing. Many of you will also have seen images of uh, Cape Town pelagics with flocks of tens of thousands of boats following a trawler. And yes, we will have large flocks of birds around the MSC uh, orchestra when we're out. But it's not going to be overwhelming in the sense that there are so many birds that you don't know which one to look at. The guides are all professional guides. They're incredibly skilled in uh, assisting you onto birds. Uh, They all know the birds incredibly well, so that shouldn't be a problem at all. But in terms of what passengers can perhaps do uh, in advance of the cruise to do some preparation, BirdLife South Africa have come up with a number of free as well as paid for resources uh, that you'll be able to uh, use to um, prepare for the, the Flock to Marion voyage. Um, we have seabird identification cards which are freely downloadable off our Flock to Marion website and these provide side-by-side comparisons of every single species, bird species that is, Every single species we hope to encounter on the Flock to Marion cruise, as well as some lovely text that goes with it detailing how to separate all of those species. So simply by increasing or expanding your knowledge that you know what a sooty albatross looks like, when the guides announce uh, that a sooty albatross is seen, you'll be one step closer to figuring out which which bird specifically that Bird is. Our guides will also be using the uh, hands of the clock or the numbers of a clock to help you onto birds. So the bow of the ship, which is the front of the ship for those who don't know uh, mariner terminology will be denoted as 12 o'clock the stern which is the rear of the ship will be denoted as six o'clock and the the hands of the clock go round from there so the guides have a system in place and there will be a leaflet in the room drops uh, in all of the cabins on our cruise to help passengers understand the system and know exactly where all of the guides are going to be positioned
0: and then for those who might want to come on flock, but their family are not birders. Is there other entertainment? Is there other things for non-birders to do on the cruise? So, if the husband's a birder and the wife isn't a birder, or the other way around, is there slot entertainment on the ship to keep other people entertained?
2: Yes. So, BirdLife South Africa have uh, come up with a very thorough lecture program. As I mentioned, there are twenty-four lectures in total that will be uh, run throughout the cruise. In four lecture slots per day, uh, so there are and the lectures I must must add are forty minutes each, and there will be opportunity to add this uh, app, to ask the speakers some questions. Um, so there will be lots of extra information for. Birders and non birders as well. In addition to that, uh, MSC Cruisers will be continuing with their normal uh, theater program. And I have to say that on the previous Flock to Marion, the previous Flock at Sea voyage, I must say, I never attended any of the theater shows, in that I spent every waking minute out on the decks in case some rare seabird flew past. And now on the Flock to Marion reconnaissance trip in uh, December, Uh, we got to watch some of the shows that will be taking place on the Flock to Marion voyage and really I have to say that these are world-class productions, uh, singing, dancing, acrobatics, you name it, they really are worthwhile attending. Uh, I would urge every single passenger to take the opportunity to watch at least one of these shows Um, and then in addition to that there are numerous restaurants on the ship and the food is really quite something Um, there's a casino there are various uh, quizzes and things that happen throughout the day so that as a non-birder there certainly is a heck of a lot to keep you busy
0: i just saw the weather the last couple of days i don't think one thing one thing people won't be doing is putting their bikini on and lying by the pool (laughs) i don't think that's going to be happening much
2: no, absolutely. and uh, Given that we will expect some fairly choppy seas, what I think will happen is they will drain the pools, uh, in that although the ship is incredibly stable, for those who do get seasick, you should be comforted by the fact that this ship has uh, the latest and most advanced uh, stabilizing technology, so you barely feel the swells at all. But up in the uh, in heavy seas, MSC tend to drain the pools just to avoid any anyone slipping or anything like that. Um, so I don't expect anyone to be wearing any bikinis. In fact, I expect people will be layering up the closer we get to Marion.
0: Yeah, I've seen on the the, 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 the group, the, the, the Flock to Marion group, a lot of people are asking about around questions around the COVID requirements, Nat. You know, do you have any updates around that which, which you can give us?
2: Yes. So the latest update from MSC Cruises is that all passengers on the Flock to Marion voyage will have to have a 48-hour negative COVID test to board the ship. In addition to that, uh, in December, MSC Cruises announced that all passengers need to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19. Uh, so those are perhaps the two most important um, important regulations to, to know of at this stage. In addition to that, I think I should take the opportunity to just provide some comfort to any passengers that may be feeling a bit nervous about COVID. I mean, we have just come... Uh, We're at the tail end of the fourth wave here in South Africa. On our previous voyage, the reconnaissance trip in December, uh, both Andrew de Block and myself were utterly impressed as to the lengths that MSC cruisers have taken to protect their passengers uh, as well as their staff. They really have thought of just about everything and passengers should be comforted by that. Um, in addition to that of course we're going to be spending a lot of time out on the decks so passengers uh, will be exposed to open air, um, free airflow. So it re- they really have taken every precaution against COVID.
1: Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We really hope you are enjoying the episode. If you would like to support us and help grow the show, please can we ask that you do two things. Firstly, please share the show on your favorite social media channel. Tell us why you enjoy the show and be sure to tag us in the post. This is one of the best ways to help get the word out about the podcast and bring more exposure to the guests that are featured and the conservation issues that are covered. Secondly, to help us cover the costs and to improve the quality of the show, please can you consider buying us a virtual coffee or two? This is a quick, safe and easy way to contribute to the show. You will find a link for this in the notes of the show.
0: So in November last year, the BirdLife South Africa Bird of the Year was announced. And like, obviously, we, I think we all kind of expected that we, it would be a seabird. So what was the criteria for selecting um, the Bird of the Year for 2022? And what was the purpose behind the campaign? You can, also, can just tell us for those who don't know, what what was the 2022 Bird of the Year?
2: Yes, so uh, many of our members will be aware that the uh, 2022 Bird of the Year was announced as the Cape Gannet. The Cape Gannet is, of course, a coastal seabird. It's near endemic to South Africa, breeding at six breeding colonies, uh, split equally between uh, Namibia and South Africa though the, the major colonies are here in South Africa, the Namibian colonies are quite small in number. Now, Bird of the Year is a program that was started ooh, well more than a decade ago. Um, and it's pr- aimed primarily about increasing awareness about the plight of South African birds uh, through a highly focused media and educational campaign. Now, the criteria for selecting the Bird of the Year are threefold. The First, uh, reasoning is typically a species that is in trouble. Uh, And indeed, the Cape Gannet has uh, recently been downgraded to endangered by the IUCN. In that the species has seen a 50% uh, reduction in its population size in the last 60 years. The second reason for selecting a um, bird of the year is it's typically a flagship species uh, that speaks to uh, conservation issues that affect many other potentially less charismatic Uh, species and indeed the threats that the Cape Gannet are facing are largely related to overfishing here in South Africa and this threat is a threat that faces all of our other seabirds here in South Africa as well as some of our marine mammals as well. And then the final reason through which we select a bird of the year is typically a species that helps promote birding in general. Uh, Typically one of those common backyard birds that uh, we so often take for granted, but which are incredibly familiar, uh, often speaking to uh, some kind of conservation issue, in that indeed this this program has a strong conservation message behind it. But sometimes we we do just uh, choose a very familiar species that... Uh, South Africans know well and that they love.
0: I think one thing I like about the, the Cape Gannett being chosen is, I mean, I uh... I look from the sea and there's now and then I see albatrosses out far. But Cape Gannets, um, especially in KZN where the sardine run and that type of thing, they although they see birds, they kind of they seem to come a little bit closer at times. It's it's one of those birds that seems to connect us landlocked people sometimes with the sea. So it's it's a re, it's a really great choice. I think a lot more people have seen them than probably than possibly seen an albatross in the flesh.
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, Cape Gannets are known to fly up to about five uh, 500 kilometers from their breeding islands, but they have been known to fly about 3,000 kilometers away from their breeding islands. Uh, the main breeding islands, as I said, are split between Namibia and South Africa. Um, but these birds have been seen as far off as Madagascar, up the west coast of Africa, so they turn up all over the place. In fact, the Cape Gannet has also even been found breeding in uh, colonies off uh, Tasmania with the uh, Australasian gannet. But these birds are primarily coastal, so as you said, their main uh, prey that they depend on are sardine and anchovy. And so you can often see these birds following the main schools of sardine that we get here in South Africa, particularly on the sardine run. And often if you sit on a beach somewhere and sc- uh, scan beyond the breakers with a pair of binoculars, you'll quite quickly pick up a pair of, well, you'll pick up small numbers of Cape Gannets flying out to sea.
0: You know, living in KZN, uh, there's, there's been, you know, if you go when the sardine runs in, is, is on these guys with these you know, the guys drive onto the beach, which is not great, but they go there with these nets and pull, you know, thousands and thousands of these sardines out of the water. Does that does that have some sort of effect on the Cape Gannets, you know, over time, or or there's just so many sardines that it doesn't really, doesn't really impact, their, impact them at all?
2: Indeed. So the primary threat that the Cape Gannet is facing is overfishing of the uh, sardine and anchovy populations here in South Africa. So what we've actually seen is a complete southward southward shift in the sardine populations uh, linked to overfishing. Um, So the fish stocks on the west coast, which are linked to the very rich Benguela current, which is a cold ocean current that flows up the west coast of South Africa, those fish stocks are incredibly depleted. And what's happening is as the food resources are... Uh, being depleted, so the Cape Gannet's behavior and population numbers are shifting in response to that. Uh, So the colonies in in South Africa, on the south coast of South Africa, are in a slightly better state of affairs but the prim- primary threat that these birds are facing is the competition with over- with sardine and anchovy populations. Sorry, the competition with fisheries linked to the sardine and anchovy populations, and that southward shift in the uh, in the fish stocks. I have to say that. It- The coastal fisheries that are happening, the netting on the KZN coast, certainly it has an impact on the sardine populations, but the primary threat to the Cape Gannet is uh, more of an industrial nature, it's that... Uh, industrial fishing of the sardine population, sardine and anchovy population. That's what's having the primary threat on the species. In addition to that, what what we're seeing with the Cape gannets is they're tending to now associate more with the fisheries, in that the fisheries are target in well other fisheries are targeting deep water species like hake and kingclip, and the Cape gannets are relying more on these fisheries discards. Uh, which obviously leads to complications with entanglement. The crux of this issue runs deeper than that, in that these uh, trawl discards that they are eating are enough to sustain the energy requirements of the adults, but in that the adult Cape Gannets are having to travel a lot further to go and find these uh, discards, um, plus the lean nature of these deep-sea fish species, means that the adults are less capable of sustaining the energy demands of their growing chicks. And so we're seeing a drop in breeding success as well, which is quite concerning and has the potential to really have massive long-term impacts in the species. Um, I did mention already, but I must just uh, reiterate, that the populations of the Cape Gannet have decreased by over 50% in the last 60 years which really is a frightening statistic. Yeah, it, it's really shocking and frightening.
0: So before we carry on chatting about the the, the Cape Gannet, you know, people can obviously nominate birds for, for bird of the year. What were some of the other birds that were, were nominated?
2: Yes, so some of the other species that have been nominated recently include birds like the bush blackcap, obviously another near endemic here in South Africa, the Cape sparrow, of course, an incredibly familiar species, but yet another near endemic here in South Africa. Uh, one of my personal favorite recent nominations has been the Cape parrot. Many of you will know that the Cape parrot is also a severely threatened bird species, um, and some quite incredible work is being done to save it. Uh, the red lark has also been suggested, of course, an endemic here in South Africa. And then a white stork has been suggested. Now, white stork, of course, is interesting in that it's a migratory species. They breed up in Europe, but they migrate down here during, the, during our summer months. Um, and they face a, a fair bit of trouble along the way. So uh, those are some of the other recent suggestions. And I know some of those suggestions have been put forward to bird of the year 2023.
0: So a bird doesn't have to be endemic to be chosen.
2: No, not at all. So some of our previous birds of the year included the Cape vulture, uh, Cape rock jumper, African penguin. Of course, many of these are um, endemic or near endemic, but there are a number of widespread species that have also been considered in that mix.
0: So, for those who haven't um, seen a Cape Gannet, I mean, it's a beautiful species. It's one of my favourite species. Maybe, maybe it's my favourite seabird species because it's one of the ones that I can identify a little bit easier. I don't know. But for those who've never seen one, can you just uh, just describe it? You know, I know we for those who are watching this on YouTube, there will be some images coming up. For those that are just you know listening on the podcast, we can obviously just just try and describe it as best we can. Just tell us what makes this bird so beautiful.
2: Yes, so the Cape Gannet is a fantastic bird. It's a fairly large bird. They uh, weigh between two and three kgs, so they are quite a substantial bird in terms of their overall size. Uh, They have a striking black and white uh, overall plumage with a predominantly white plumage in the adult uh, form with black in the wings and then they have that beautiful yellow wash that extends its richest on the top of the head and the back of the neck and it extends down over the back of the neck um, and the sides of the face. My favourite feature of all with the Cape Gannet is their incredible almost painted faces so they have the striking black and white pattern at the edge of their bill with bare facial skin. An incredibly crisp and beautiful uh, baby blue eye ring, and then a pale eye which sticks out quite uh, quite prominently against the blue and black bare facial skin, and then this beautiful beak. Something that is quite interesting with the Cape Gannet is they don't necessarily have a visible nostril. Many of you will be aware that the nostril of a, sea, uh, of a bird is just generally on the top of the bill, Uh, because gannets are diving seabirds, they typically dive into the sea in pursuit of anchovy and sardines, uh, reaching speeds at about 100 kilometers an hour as they hit the surface of the water. Their nostril has has evolved to be a slight crack at the side of the bill uh, to prevent water from flushing up into their, their nasal cavity as they hit the surface of the water. We have two gannet species here in South Africa. The Cape gannet, which is the near endemic and the common gannet. And then we have the Australasian gannet, which occurs as something of a vagrant here in South Africa. Though there are a handful of birds that are pretty much resident year-round in some of our breeding colonies. Now, the Cape gannet has what's known as a gular stripe which for those watching on YouTube, if you have a look at the left-hand image here, is a stripe of bare black facial skin that extends from the base of the bill and down the neck. Now this extends pretty much the length of the neck, um, but in Australasian gannet, which is the bird pictured in the right-hand image, the gular stripe is considerably shorter. One must also note that the uh, eye color of an Australasian gannet is typically much darker than that of a cape gannet, the head is more uh, well the yellow on the head is more restricted to the top of the head and is more of an orange than a golden yellow. And then Australasian Gannet always shows a fairly prominent um, black and white tail structure with the four central black feathers being black and the four outer feathers on each side of the tail being white, whereas in the Cape Gannet uh, they can show anything from a completely black tail to a completely white tail, or some variation, a black tail with two, two or three white feathers here and there.
0: So you're chatting a little bit about the the nostril when they dive, and I think that's one of the things that absolutely fascinates me about this bird. You know, I love sitting, you know, just looking over the ocean um, and seeing these birds diving in, and the, the speed they dive in is is insane. I mean, how do they manage to do that? To do that without without hurting themselves? I mean, if we went into the sea at that kind of speed, we'll probably come up with brain damage or something. I, I don't know. How do they manage to do it?
2: Yes, so the Cape Gannets will typically fly about 20 or 30 meters above the sea. When they see um, a shoal of fish, what they do is they just close their wings and they plummet head first towards the sea. As they're about to hit the water, what they do is they flex their wings, uh, which allows them to glide more easily into the water. Of course, that long, sharp, dagger-like bill helps pierce the surface of the water. The special nostril um, helps them avoid water from flushing up into the nasal cavity. Yeah, they're they're just, it's a phenomenal adaptation and uh, behavior that these birds have. The fact that they're uh, hitting the water at about 100 kilometers an hour really is uh, quite incredible. I have worked on the Cape Gannet and I've spent a fair amount of time out in their breeding colonies, and one does from time to time see birds with uh, a portion of their bill broken off, almost certainly linked to hitting the, uh, the surface of the water at the wrong angle or the wrong speed. Um, but what's quite fascinating is these birds with the broken bill somehow tend to survive, and you see there's a few individuals in some of these breeding colonies that have been there for quite some time, so their broken bill doesn't seem to hamper their survival in any way.
0: So yeah, you start I remember when when Peter Harrison did the chat. You know, at, at the bird fair, he chatted a little bit about the you know the, the the breeding habits of the of the albatrosses. So tell us a little bit about the breeding habits of the Cape Gannet.
2: So the Cape gannet nests on small offshore islands. These islands are typically quite flat in nature. They can have a bit of rock here and there, but they are uh, typically very. Small to extremely large breeding colonies. Some of the smallest colonies are only a few hundred birds, whereas the largest colony amounts to probably about 250,000 birds in total. Um, so, very small to very large breeding colonies, typically small, flat offshore islets. Um, they, uh, of course, 250,000 birds uh, results in a lot of guano. Uh, So these in the past have been important guano collection islands and historically that was a major threat to the species. Of course it's less of a threat today. The birds typically nest in extremely high density with one another and at the edge of the colony what you typically see is sort of a runway that birds will walk from the center of the colony out to the sides of the colony where they've got this clear uh, space of open ground. And because it's such a large seabird, they need a bit of a run-up. They need to gain some momentum before they're able to lift off. Um, and so you see these birds walking off to the edge of the colony and then they they run to gain some speed and then they lift off. So it's an incredible bird to watch. There are a number of uh, accessible breeding sites, uh, Bird Island and Lamberts Bay, for example. There's a lovely observation tower where you can look over the breeding colony and you can watch the comings and goings of these birds. Um, But then there are a number of sites that are listed as marine national parks that are obviously inaccessible to the general public. Um, And those are the islands that typically host the major population. Bird Island, which is in Algoa Bay, quite near Port Elizabeth, is the largest gannetry in the world. Gannetry being a breeding site of gannets. Uh, This is the largest gannetry. Gannetry in the world hosting in the order of about two hundred and fifty thousand birds. Sure, that's
0: insane. You, you touched on a little bit earlier on about how the behavioural the behaviour of gannets has changed due to the de- depletion of fish stocks. What sort of changes have been observed?
2: So we've seen a general southward shift in the species population, so the colonies on the west coast of South Africa have been in substantial decline for quite some time now, linked to overfishing of the forage fish stocks. Uh, So the major populations of the Cape Gannet are now uh, on the south coast of South Africa. In addition to that, birds are typically having to travel a lot further from their breeding colonies to go and find food, in that the fish stocks are typically uh, fewer and further between. But what has been quite successful, one of the most successful efforts uh, through which the species can be conserved, is the uh, creation of marine national parks, or MPAs, which are basically fisheries no-take zones, and we've seen direct uh, benefits to the species linked to marine marine no-take zones so yes it's just been a general southward shift in the species overall population we've seen them uh, flying further to go and try and find some fish um, but there are some successful ways in which the birds are being conserved and that's slowing the declines but it isn't really enough so the species populations are still in a quite slow decline.
0: So what's always exciting with the bird of the year is the resources and the material that that, that gets available. I always am a big fan of the fluffies. Um, I think it's the only toy that grown people are allowed to buy every single year. <laughs> they are so cool. So tell us about some of the resources and some of the things that will be available around the bird of the year this year.
2: Yes, yeah, so as I mentioned before, the bird of the year has a strong conservation and educational message linked to it. And a big part of that is getting some educational material out there that's uh learners um, adults can all uh, learn about the uh, the plight of this and other species that occur here in South Africa. In addition to that we do a bit of fundraising through the sale of some bird of the year merchandise. So we have some wonderful uh, t-shirts in both white and navy featuring featuring some fantastic artwork on the Cape Gannet. In addition to that we've got some really wonderful uh, pin badges or lapel pins. These have grown increasingly popular here in South Africa. It's been, there's been a huge market for them overseas for quite some time now, but the market for them here in South Africa is really being boosted. Um, and the pin badge is, for for the Cape Gannet at least, is one of the best as far as I'm concerned. I have been lucky to have a sneak peek at them, they haven't been released quite as yet. And then in addition to that, uh, as you said, we've got some fantastic plushies which are small teddy bears. Then in terms of educational material, uh, we have a number of educational infographics that are being put together for us by a fantastic wildlife artist. Uh, These include sticker pages for children, We've got poster designs, we've got lesson plans for teachers targeting uh, children of uh, various ages, and then we've got some fantastic coloring pages as well. Now, a lot of this merchandise is going to be available through our online shop, which is Shop for the Birds, um, and that can be reached at shop.birdlife.org.za, but in addition to that, the educational infographics are going to be released throughout the year um, and are available for free download off the uh, BirdLife South Africa website uh, where you can also find information on all of the other bird of the years that we've had through the years. The bird of the year 2021 was of course the Cape Rock Jumper and all the infographics are there. We also have fantastic plush toys, t-shirts and pin badges for that species as well. So primarily a conservation tool um, but then also a bit of fundraising linked to it as well.
0: So, BirdLife South Africa is probably one of the best conservation organisations in the country, and I dare say in the world. Also, just on a side note, BirdLife South Africa produces a fantastic uh, magazine, African BirdLife, and there's some really great articles in the magazine on the Cape Gannet. So it's you know it's worth getting your hand. I. Hands on these, I get them at pick and pay, but I'm sure you can get them at, a, at other places. And when you take up membership with BirdLife South Africa, you can obviously get that included in your your membership. So, um, Daniel, how can people support the amazing work that BirdLife South Africa is doing?
2: yes yeah, so uh information on the work that we do as an organization can be found on our website, which is of course birdlife.org.za. As an NGO, a lot of our work is funded by our membership, our supporters. So on our website, there are a number of donation portals where you can make a contribution to the work that we are doing. Um, And you can donate to a specific cause. So if you're particularly passionate about seabird conservation, then there's various projects that you can donate to in that regard. Uh, In addition to that, uh, we love that our members are so active on Facebook and other social media. And we encourage any prospective members to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, or LinkedIn, where you can find more information about the work that we do. Occasionally, we do, uh, well, from time to time, we do uh, run petitions for certain things. We do uh, request funding for specific issues that are maybe prevalent or work that we are doing. Um, so that can all be uh, found through our website and our social media.
0: Well, Daniel, it's been so fantastic to chat to you. I know this has been a bit, of, a bit of a longer episode, but I'm sure that people have been listening will, will all agree this has been fantastic. So thanks so much for your time. I uh, really appreciate it. And yeah, and just encourage people just to to support the amazing work that you're doing and look forward to meeting you on the cruise. Thank you so much. Yes, absolutely
2: cannot wait for flock for to marry. It's really, really exciting.
1: We are proud to be working in association with Wild Books Online store to help get all the best birding and nature books into your hands at a great price. If you would like to support the Birding Life project and the resources that we are putting out, please click on the link either in the comment section of this podcast or our social media posts. Your support helps us to improve and hopefully make a bigger impact. Don't forget to follow The Birding Life on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. We appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts. Be sure to check out Bird Lasser and download the app on either iOS or Android. And keep a life list while playing your part in social conservation as well as Swarovski Optic one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.